Welcome, Building Brands listeners. For our 22nd episode, I'm joined by Eric Edelson, Chief Executive Officer at Fireclay Tile. Fireclay does tile differently. By tapping into California's rich ceramic tradition, they've been finding creative solutions for tile that last a lifetime. But like the many makers that have come before them, they've never forgotten their profound connection to the earth and strive to honor that legacy in all that they do. In this episode, Eric talks about Fireclay's shift from a wholesale distribution model to a direct-to-consumer business model and how taking a very calculated approach to brand strategy helps set the foundation for building enriched customer experiences that set Fireclay apart in the market and helped grow the company to nearly 20 times the size of where they were before the shift. Enjoy the episode. If you're an owner or marketer in the building materials manufacturing, distribution, or contracting spaces looking to set up your brand for success now and in the future, this is the podcast for you. On this show, we talk about brand and market strategies used in the real world that grow companies and truly connect with consumer audiences. So sit back, listen in, and let's get to it. Okay, welcome, Eric Edelson, Chief Executive Officer at Fireclay Tile. Thanks for coming on. It's good to have you. Tim, great to great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, I'd like to start with a super easy question. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, maybe how you got into building materials, and of course, how you got involved with Fireclay Tile, and we'll, we'll kind of stem into the, the company and from that aspect. Absolutely. I'm one of those people who never thought I would end up in this space. Uh, my mom was actually in the textile business for a period of time, and I had no interest in it whatsoever. So now that I'm running a tile manufacturing business is, is a surprise to many people, my friends and the family. But, uh, but I've been here for 12 years and, and really love it. My background was really in healthcare. I, I studied neuroscience in college. I ended up working in Wall Street doing venture capital investing in, in the med tech space for a number of years. I went back and got my MBA. The kind of core theme of all that is I ended up just really loving small business. I loved kind of the early stage entrepreneurial endeavors and really wanted to try to find something that I could be a part of in a leadership and ownership role. And it eventually led me to meeting the founder of Fireclay in 2009. Uh, I've been here for 11 or 12 years ever since. But, but I'd say small business, entrepreneurship, and then healthcare is kind of like a really interesting thing because that was all about helping people. And as we dive more into Fireclay, I think you'll you'll see this theme around taking care of people and very personal approach and a holistic approach that that I've really tried to bring to this company. Yeah, I didn't plan on working in the building materials industry either. So I kind of relate to that. We just you fall into it and you're like, oh, these people are great and the companies are super cool. And yeah, I, I totally know that. So tell us a little bit more about Fireclay. What drew you to it and dive into a little bit to the history and like where it's came from, because we're going to talk a lot about the transformative stuff that you did after coming on board and trying some things out and, and seeing where you could go with it. So give us the foundation of where it started and how you, how, what drew you to it. And then we'll kind of switch into talking about like where it is now and, and going into that pivot story. Yeah. Very simply, Fireclay, we make, we make and sell the most beautiful tile in the world. The company's history goes back to the 1930s and this rich tradition of tile making in California. So tile is, you know, has been made for centuries, millennia. Uh, I like to make the, someone once told me that ceramics is the second oldest profession after prostitution uh, because, <laughs> you know, it was just clay and heat and all of a sudden you had bowls and, and dishes. And so, you know, ceramics is, it's just been part of, of, of history. And even as, you know, people like we play with dirt as young kids and in school, we do 
arts and crafts and clay and glaze. And so it's just like everyone has this familiarity with with earth. And so in Northern California, there's this rich heritage of tile making. We have a great climate, very indoor, outdoor, and we had great, great clay around here. So the history of fire clay goes back to the 1920s, 1930s. And then in 1950, a company called Stonelight Tile was created, kind of absorbed some of the assets from this company going back to the 20s. And the founder of fire clay, it was his uncle who started Stonelight Tile. So when Paul, who's the founder of fire clay, was young, he ended up with his mom moving in with his uncle. Uh, he started working in the in the factory, learning tile, learning firing, and glaze, and chemistry, and uh, and then in his twenties ended up starting Fire Clay in San Jose, California. And for most of the the time that Fire Clay was around, from 1986 to to let's say 2009, 2010, uh, you know, best described as a small artisan tile studio at its height during the kind of big buildup of a uh, housing boom in 2006, 2007, a few million dollars in sales, uh, 30, 30, 35 people. And what it did was there was a store in San Jose, but the craft was really this artisan tile making, handmade tile manufacturer. And it sold through the store in San Jose. It sold through a number of tile stores across the country, uh, mostly small, independent kind of mom and pop high end tile stores. And that was really the, the history of Fire Clay. Really beautiful products. There was a history. Uh, Paul was really kind of a futurist in some ways in terms of thinking about materials differently. He used a lot of recycled and waste materials in the tile that was different from a lot of other people. Mm. But I was a, a very small company when, when I first met him. Who is the general customer type that you're trying to work with? Is it homeowners and individuals, contractors, architects, designers, a mix of both? I mean, maybe that's changed since the, the beginning of the company, but where, where do you sort of stand now? Who are you trying to put this tile in front of so that they can use it on their great projects? Yeah, so that, I'd say you know to your point, it's it's really evolved. So so back when I met Paul, I'd say that you know our our primary customer was either a walk-in homeowner uh, or a wholesale customer. So that was the wholesale gotcha. retail store that we we would get orders from. We would you know we'd give them concept boards or whatever it was at the time, samples. Uh, we would take an order from them, we would make it, and and they would sell it. That's evolved to to today, where you know we are completely vertically integrated. We have no wholesale business, so. Our customers are uh, residential and commercial customers. The residential are, are homeowners or uh, residential designers or architects. And then on the commercial front, it's everything from uh, kind of high-end uh, architectural and design firms, the Genslers, HOKs, uh, or brands, you know, Salesforce, Google, Starbucks, uh, or commercial tile contractors who are looking for you know more reliable, reliable products or maybe more locally sourced products, whatever it might be, where we're, where we're coming in and, and supporting them on that project. Now, I know this because we've talked before this recording, but you did shift from moving a little... Oh, you said you moved away from that wholesale model and, and you started actually trying to just go straight to these customer types and, and interact with them a little bit more. It seems like that was a huge move. I believe you've had some major growth gains out of that and as well as customer interactions and experiences too. Can you talk about like at a high level, like what's sort what you saw in the market that made you kind of want to make that shift and that pivot, and then we can talk about like yeah. maybe a couple of the steps that you went through to make sure the company was like positioned properly for that to actually have success. Yeah, well, so I, and I think this is this is a really applicable to your audience. I mean, so to kind of bring you back ten years or so, two thousand nine, I partnered with Paul, and and you know, this company was pretty much on the brink of you know insolvency. It was uh, the the recession was kicking in. Oh, right. yep. declining declining sales uh you know no cash uh and then we had this you know very distributed model and and a and just a frankly a business model uh which was 
really financially un unstable. So really low gross margins, like you know, almost zero profitability. And I, it wasn't just us. I mean, I saw that from a lot of our other pure, pure tile companies. So over the next few years, I saw a lot of you know our friends and colleagues and peers like just disappear, close up shop, go out of business. And what was always like shocking is as the market started to rebound, you know, here, here these peer manufacturers were going out of business and then these retailers would be opening more stores. And, yeah. you know, that just was like really unsettling for me because, you know, here we were making the product, you know, like bending over backwards and, and no discredit from retailers, but, you know, it just, it felt like we were not having the success that we could be having. And, you know, the financials are very straightforward, right? We would, we would make tile. We would sell it to a wholesale partner for like seven, you know ten dollars, and it would cost us like eight dollars to make that. And mm -hmm. They would then turn around and sell it for twenty, you know, and then they would pay us thirty days later. So we took all the we took all that you know effort up front. We had to like you know have the supply and the machines and the manufacturing and the labor. We'd make it. We'd make like two or three bucks. They'd make ten, and they'd pay us thirty days later. And so you know it just it just really bothered me. And and as I talked to more manufacturers and. And I desperately tried so hard to take this beautiful product that we sold and do everything we could to build our business in the wholesale channel. And, you know, that was everything. I mean, I had that philosophy of, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships of like, if I can help them improve their business, our business would improve. And so, you know, whether it was webinars, whether it was, I mean, I did crazy stuff back in the day. This is, you know, 2010, 2011. You know, I was like really a fanatic about SEO and, just like Google and web. And so we, we did a bunch to improve our website. I would like go and grade all of our, I used to grade our retailers websites and I would give them this grade. I would educate them on how they can make their website better. You know, I would travel the country. I would do trainings, webinars. I was doing webinars in 2009, 2010, where this industry wasn't doing that anything to help them grow their business. And it just wasn't working. And, and then we had this like other part of our business that was just more successful. And that was the direct business. There was this funny story in 2011 or 2012. My wife was very senior at Pottery Barn. She's a merchant, you know, big dollars, really successful. And I said, it was my birthday. And I was like, um, she's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, you know, I just, I just want your time to help me with fire clay. I want you to look at our catalog so that you can help me create a better catalog. It's probably an exceptional catalog. Mm -hmm. So we went down to Christie Field in San Francisco and I had this whole like rendering from this graphic designer of our catalog. And she opens it and you know she's just clearly appalled. It looks like, you know, and she's like, there's all this stuff in here. There's all these like decoratives and these weird tile shapes and stuff. And she's like, what is like who is this for? And I was like, oh, it's it's for our customers. And she's like, well who, you know, like who? And I was like, oh, it's the dealers. And these dealers, like, we got to grow our dealer business. And she goes, uh, well, what percent of like your sales are the dealers? I was like, oh, it's like uh, 30, 40%. And her response is, why are we talking about the dealers? And I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, like, why, what, what's the 70%? Like, what's, oh, they're the walk in people. Like, those are the homeowners and like the people who call us. But like, it's really about growing the dealers. And she was just like, can we not have this conversation? We can like go and like, do something <laughs> fun because this just sounds like a waste of time. Like, let's not talk about the dealers. And it was just like this whole wake up around like the whole mindset was focusing on these wholesale customers and trying to grow that business. And then there was this direct business. I will say there's a very valuable point in that little mini story that you just told too. You brought in an objective view to look at something that you had tunnel vision on yeah. that you thought was the right thing in the moment. But that's just because you were surrounded by other people who thought that, that was the right thing too. And that's once exactly you right. had her take that second look, you were like, oh, crap, man. Like, how did we yeah. miss this? Yeah, and it's so absolutely. obvious once you see it too. Well, it was it was just how it was just how it was done, right? Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that's, you know, the manufacturer stayed in their lane and the retailer stayed in their lane and the distributor stayed in its lane. And so, so, you know, what ended up happening was, um, you know, I had this, I ended up having this epiphany around, you know, we have a good business. We just have a bad business model and we were not ever going to win in the wholesale channel. And that was no disrespect for the wholesale channel. It just was, there was so much competition. There were other good handmade tile companies who frankly had more market share than we did. And it was just an uphill battle that we were never going to win. And so I looked around and I said, I can either spend another four years trying to build that business more, or I can go and do this different thing. So I mean, it wasn't like that was the conversation. Like it probably took another year for me to really see it, but ended up having this epiphany of just, we've got to build our brand. So in 2013, we recognized and made this pivot to build a direct customer focused company and to get out of the wholesale channel. And we still didn't have very much money. I think instead of having no money in the bank or a few thousand dollars in the bank, like we did in 2009, I think we had you know maybe $50,000 in the bank, but not nearly enough money to build a website and, 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 to, and to build the brand that we needed. So we raised about $2 million from outside investors with this idea of, of really going, of going direct and getting to the end customer. Whether that was a homeowner or whether that was Google, it was like, we want to service that customer and we think we could do it better than anyone else. And so we pivoted the business. We ended up writing a letter and firing all of our wholesale customers. And in January 6, 2014, relaunching in this you know, direct way. And so that was the pivot. That was the bet. And uh, yes, we, it's led to significant growth for us ever since. And there's an interesting aspect of that too, where when you take out, and, and this might not work for everyone, but for the situation that you're in, this was very real. You're trying to shift from kind of operating through a third party with your end users. And when you're talking about doing brand and brand strategy and relaunching things into the world that better suit the end user, you're kind of separated by one or two levels from them. And it's hard to actually develop a relationship that way. So they afforded you the opportunity to actually tackle the brand strategy and the creative assets and the experience tools that you're developing online and in your sales and customer account processes. And that kind of gives you that more close connection between the organization slash brand and the, and the end user, which you would fight to find the time to connect with them with when there's always distribution and wholesale involved. Yeah, yeah. So everything you just said makes a lot of sense and, and is right. And and I think that we also had we had fear though. You know, I think that there was this fear that all of a sudden, you know, we felt like we were worried that these dealers were protecting us in some way. And that mm-hmm. if we then went and tried to sell to all these customers around the country, you know, oh my God, they could all get upset at us and they could, you know, come after us and you know, what a color variation, all these different nuances of our business. You know, we wouldn't be there. We weren't physically next to them. You know, we were really worried that we were going to end up having more, even though we had a bunch of customer complaints with the wholesale customers, we were worried it was going to be even more because all of a sudden the consumer would say, well, now I know exactly where it's coming from. I'm going to get more upset. And you know what? It was like the complete opposite happened because we understood our product better than anyone else, because we were able to navigate that sale and have that conversation and explain so many things up front that we had tried to do before, but just never really happened, our reject or error rate went down massively. And so all of a sudden, we were making customers happier. Um, Instead of our salespeople just getting yelled at by wholesale customers who didn't really value us or what we did or how we did it, you know, we had consumers who are now, you know, praising us and thanking us and appreciating us. And so all of a sudden, like, honestly, it just made business way more fun. 
that actually like, and then it became this like kind of flywheel. And all of a sudden, you know, imagery was such a, I mean, imagery is easier now, but it had been impossible for us to ever see like an end product. And, you know, fast forward today where, I mean, I probably have four unique projects coming into my inbox every single day from different salespeople, Instagram, wherever, of just like, here's our product, here's our product, here's our product. And we can now share that with our makers. And That's so, amazing. you know, now it's like, it's so much more fun. And when we do make a mistake, because we make mistakes one to 3% of the time where it just doesn't go right, like we can just do incredible things to make people happy. We can just do stuff that like we never would have been able to do or certainly would have never gotten credit for. Uh, and all of a sudden, like turn a negative situation into a completely positive situation. So removing the barriers you talked about, getting closer to the customer, you know, has had just such a positive impact. And and then like, you know, our margins have literally doubled and in, in not from like a dollar perspective. I'm talking about going from like 25% gross margins to 55% gross margins. So yes, we spend a lot more money on sales and marketing and other investments on technology, but you know, we're able to now get all of that retail margin and and invest in better experiences for customers, better support for customers, making a much, much more successful customer experience. Yeah. And that's not to say that distribution doesn't have its place for people still. There's a lot of companies that need that yeah. logistical support nationwide. And, and you know, to even get your start in that arena is, can still be useful for people. But there, all those things you talked about direct to consumer are definite benefits if you have the foundational processes in history that you can make a shift like that. You can see huge gains from going direct to consumer. Well, and I don't want to ever underappreciate or or have anyone else ever underestimate how much work it took. Yeah. Because I think sometimes people can say, oh, I'll throw up a website um, or I just need to get online. Yeah. Now I can do e-commerce people, on my yeah, website. Yeah. So I don't need the distributors. It's not quite like a flip of a switch. Yeah. So while we have a 34-year history going back to 1986, when we relaunched this business in 2014, you know, I would say no one knew who we were. And, and to be frank, if they did, I, I can't even say our brand had an incredible reputation. Yes, we did some cool things. But because we had all these third-party um, retailers, you know, it's always funny with retailers. When it's successful, they take the credit. And when it's unsuccessful, they blame the manufacturer. So we weren't necessarily getting the praise. <laughs> we were definitely getting the blame. But that building the brand was really hard. It took like a lot of effort. And I think people fail to appreciate the technical and effort on the like just the website and the content generation. Photography, it's easier today, but back then, I mean, you know, like tremendous investment in photography. Uh, and the digital assets, uh, a lot of investment in the sampling and the sampling experience. Mm-hmm. And we still, it's funny, like we still secret shop all of our competitors and yet they still aren't as good at us on the sampling. We, we still, and it hasn't even changed that much. It's not that hard to copy, but like the personalization, making sure that like when someone gets a sample, it's personally signed, that the email that follows up is personal in nature, that they get a phone call back, the marketing automation that follows the, the packaging and the packaging experience that feels personal, the like, checkout experience and the commerce experience, the manufacturing experience, the follow-up, the shipping, the logistics, you know, all of that stuff to really create a consumer experience. What Amazon makes look so easy. You know, I think people fail to appreciate like that it's not just the technology. It's it's technology, yes, but it's all the people and supporting processes to make that work incredibly well. And so I think I think for us, like there was so much intention and so much effort. And and again, that desire to like yeah, we're going to bet the business if this doesn't work. Like we don't, we can't go back to wholesale. Like it's over. Like this is a, this yeah. is a make or break thing. 
you know, that, that was a big risk. And, um, and we made mistakes all over the place in that process and wasted a ton of money, learned a lot, but it was a really strong concerted effort to reinvent ourselves. And, and I, I just think that like, you know, we didn't have a history. No one knew who we were. We had to create this out of thin air, but that, that investment in time and effort was, was really significant. And, and the money that we spent, not that we had a lot of it, but we, we tried like, and we put dollars to work. You can't underestimate how, like what the consumer companies that you love, like what they do that is so good and easy is, it takes work. And it's not, it's not like tons and millions and tens of millions of dollars. It's just like concerted effort and focus around the customer and the customer experience. Yeah. And you mentioned that that takes time too. You didn't just spend eight months on a logo and then, you know, four months on a website and then spend money on that. You were looking at what the customer needs were and trying to match these experiences that you're developing up with those needs because you were shifting what your value prop was in the market, which was we're going to treat you differently when you work with us. And here's the ways that we're doing it. We're creating these experiences, but you have to know the customer in order to do that. That gives you the inspiration to build the right sample kit experience and have the right, I mean, unboxing is a huge thing. We see it in, uh, I just talked about this on the last episode in unboxing like Jordan's is like a huge YouTube phenomenon. And yeah. you, you, get, you can develop the same experience for opening tile or hardwood yeah. samples or whatever it might be, hardware. And it makes the person, especially if you personalize it like you're talking about, it's just, that's just an insane way of, of really connecting with someone. And when they're comparing four products that are basically the same, but they see extra customer experience value and care taken by one person, that's how you win people, not just in that one sale, but for the rest of, if it's a contractor or a designer, yeah. that's sale after sale after sale. You're actually building a relationship. If it's a homeowner, you're hoping that that's a cool enough experience and that their project is sick enough that their neighbor's like, oh man, like I need it on that action too. And it's a little bit different, but it still makes an impact. Yeah. the I tend to be both... I like numbers and I'm, I'm definitely like quant driven, but I also really appreciate anecdotal stories. And, and so the, the things for us were like this... Uh, you know, we had this one experience where it was like 2012 or 2013, we got a $25,000 residential order. And it was like the biggest order of our year. And I was like, I went downstairs and I went to our salesperson, this woman, Alex, who's I think now has been with us for like 22 years. And, and I was just like, Alex, like, wh- like what happened? And she's like, what do you, <laughs> what do you mean? I was like, what did we do? Like, we just got like, there's a huge order. It's amazing. And she, I was like, what did we do? She goes, I, I sent them a sample. And I was like, awesome. Like, and then what'd you do? She's like, I nothing. I was like, no, I like you send them a sample and then like the follow up and the design. She's like, she looks at me. She's like, did I do something wrong? I'm like, Alex, you must have done more. She's like, no. I was like, so we sent them a sample. We got a $25,000 order. And this was across the country. This is in Philadelphia. We're in California. And I just was like, Jesus, we need to send more samples. And, and then, so like, that was like the aha of just like, we just got to get product in people's hands, like any way possible. And then to your point about like getting a sample in someone's hands, like some of it just came down to math around, you know, if you go into a tile store and, and you've probably been in these, I mean, they are just like, I, I can't even, it was hard for me to, to visit them because there's just so much stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you go into them and if we're lucky enough to be, you know, put on the wall and honored to have that space, you know, we're one of a hundred vendors in there and probably one of like 2000 different options. And, and so, you know, the odds of like getting picked are just incredibly low. But if all of a sudden I'm now sending someone a sample, I'm now maybe one of five other samples in their home 
And now the odds are like way stacked in my favor. And I've just commanded a sampling experience and a digital experience to go with it. And so like all of a sudden the like probability just completely shifts. And even today, you know, like as much as we are like very digitally enabled, we're super technology driven. We run our whole company on the salesforce.com platform. And, and I would like to go toe to toe with literally any other company in the building material space around like our data sophistication and how well we track samples and projects and quotes. It's still very difficult. You know, we still are in an industry with um, disparate specifiers and purchasers. You know, a homeowner might be working with a designer and then the tile contractor makes the purchase. And in the commercial space, you know, it's completely messed up. You've got a specifier at a big firm. There's multiple people involved. It then gets onto a, a bid. You now have multiple tile contractors calling us for pricing. And, and meanwhile, that sales cycle is like, you know, three years. Yeah. Whereas in residential, it's 60 days. And so the, the kind of consumer, direct to consumer, online, Shopify, Magento, whatever kind of like, what's our e-commerce conversion rate? Like none of that applies because like the attribution challenge in our industry is really challenging. It's really difficult. And so, so we still have a lot to learn and get better at. Like I can kind of grossly tell you conversion, but like there's still so much we don't know. There's still so much to figure out. So we're still going a little bit back to that anecdotal story of like, just getting people like product in people's hands and trying to make it like great and trying to create a connection back to the maker and like how we can invite them into the experience, the design process and, and like hoping that it works out uh, and not knowing and kind of being comfortable with that discomfort of let's just get it out there. And, and then we'll give people the support and the experience and the understanding and the palette and it should work. And so like we've just now, you know, we've sent, hundreds of thousands of samples out into the world. And, you know, it's a little bit of a hunch that it's going to work and it's certainly working, but like your every day is a hunch. Like I still, you know, we make product in like three to four weeks. I literally don't know what my company looks like five weeks from now. And that's like crazy, but that's, that's the model. Yeah. And when you're dealing with a 60 day to three year sales cycle, depending on who's in the funnel at any given time, if you don't have the ecosystem around the sample kit with content and project posts and inspiration posts and follow-ups and bringing them into project update email list. I don't know. Anything could yeah. could be in play there. You know, you have the CRM with automated marketing and everything there too. You could lose their attention across that vast time frame. But when you're talking about samples, like everyone always complains about the cost of sending a sample kit. But in building materials, even in residential, we're not talking about sending a $50 sample kit for a $150 order. We're yeah. usually talking four to five digit numbers for one project. Yeah. You get that in the hands of a commercial developer or um, architect, and you're talking about that one order times 50 units. Yeah. So what does the $50 really cost you at that point if your you know, closing percentage is, I don't know, whatever, under 50% and say 20 to 30%, you could st- you're still coming out the other side positive and you develop that customer experience too. And it yeah. helps them do their jobs. Yeah, and I could—I mean, we—I could do an entire podcast on sampling in terms of there's so much to do there, and and I think that that's right. Like there is a big cost, there is a big investment, and and part of the benefits of our business model of this direct to end customer, you know, is is twofold, right? Better sampling experience for the end customer. You're gonna you're getting like a, a sample that was actually made recently, you know, so it's like a real mm-hmm. legit sample. It's not like I got a sample and then you get the order and that you know person calls the brand and they're not making that anymore because it's three years old. So it's it's fresh. <laughs> uh, not that our product goes stale, but it's fresh. But more importantly, we we can track all of that. And and so, you know, we have this philosophy internally of 
uh, no, no sample left behind kind of mentality that every, every sample has a project. And to your point, like that project could be $500 or $500,000. And so the, the relationship of sample to project, the understanding of like the project and potential demand for that, uh, that helps really all of a sudden now give us insight into how much CapEx we need to spend, how much investment we need to make in production, how we need to think about scheduling, what's coming down the pipeline. So the ability to forecast and plan you know, for a business like ours that is historically, you know, impossible, all of a sudden we have like way more insight and we can have a much more collaborative relationship with our factory, um, creating a, a better kind of production and, and end user experience. But, but that ability to kind of connect the sample to the project, ultimately to the specifier. So we now all of a sudden have this ability to look at a design firm and to say, you know, Whereas before you might have never really gotten a sale from them because everything went through a contractor. We now actually have a value for that design firm. So we can then thank them, appreciate them, make sure we're following up on them. Uh, so all that data now becomes like really helpful for our sales organization so that they know like where to spend their time and who's giving us orders and who's specifying us and who's not. And that's okay if like people aren't, but for the people who are, we can now really make sure that we're doing intimate marketing and connection and appreciation, which is, which is really exciting. Yeah, everyone's always scared of big data, but it can really actually help and improve business operations and customer relationships too. And yeah, if you have the data that allows you to make informed decisions on where you're spending internal customer relationship dollars or external targeting dollars, if you don't have the data, you're just throwing crap out there and seeing what sticks and crossing your fingers and hoping that it works. Yeah. Now that's all yeah. that's all very tangible data-driven pivot and strategy stuff, but I know from our conversations about Fireclay, that you actually took an even higher approach to developing the brand, which was to cultivate a culture internally that would then connect with the people that you're you're working with from an end user standpoint, because the culture is part of the reason why people like working with you and like working for you. So if you want to dive into that, I think that's a really useful topic too, because a lot of people get wrapped up in to the data-driven side, which is I can calculate ROI for dollars out in advertising and dollars out in sample kits, but it's harder to grasp the concept of ROI for having a strong company culture that values customer relationships and internal team collaboration and, and all these other purposes that a company can have that make people want to work with them versus the slightly cheaper or faster company down the street. Yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, a little bit like yourself, because I, because I got into this a little bit accidentally, you know, I don't come into this industry with this massive love for design and tile and, and even the building material industry. I mean, it's like, I would say my love is really about like the love for my company and for our customers and for like the, the ecosystem that we've created. And, and my love is this idea of like mass customization and personalization and helping people and we have incredible talent at Fireclay around product and design that really make sure that like we're doing what the customer wants. But but because I'm not like this product driven leader, like you might find in a lot of companies in this space, my my passion is a little bit more on the the business side and and what we call this stakeholder capitalism side. So instead of just being here to make money or to sell more stuff, it's really about this stakeholder philosophy of making sure that as we grow, our, our entire ecosystem around us is super successful. And so uh, for us, that's, that's, our, that's, our, that's our employees, it's our team members first and foremost, it's our community and, and our local community, 
uh, it's it's our environment and, and certainly kind of what we what we are doing harm to the environment and how we're we're correcting that. It's it's certainly our customers and our and our givebacks uh, and then just like how we run and operate as a as a business. So so all that's grounded in what we call our B Corp mentality or benefit corporation or a certified B Corp. And I think you know I would sometimes go to the trade shows in Tile. It's called coverings or their services, and you know you just end up in this like you know massive massive convention center, and there's just product everywhere, and everyone's got so much product, and everyone is just waiting to unload product, and there's just kilns and factories all over the world that are just like waiting to get that order and turn it on and ship it, and and so like build the brand and connect with customers and consumers. You know, to me it was like okay. Everyone's got product. Like we can't again. We can't win in the product game. You know, Tyler that's true is, for every like, industry. Yeah, everyone's got you know, product. <laughs> it's like it's like kind of. I mean, Tyler's like a commodity at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. so we gotta like rise above it. So that's where brand comes in. That's where you know the look, feel, the emotion, and and certainly there is this sweeping mentality, and it's important around you know customers and consumers. They want more, so they didn't want more from a company because there's so much product. They want corporate responsibility. They want social responsibility. They want um, a brand that stands for something. They want sustainability. And so having this, instead of certifying at a product level, we certify at a company level with our with the B Corp certification. It really does hold us to a higher level. It holds us to a, a completely different mindset. And, and it elevates the conversation with our customers beyond just the product. And all of a sudden, now we're talking to them about the company and the people. And we're talking to them about their company and like what they're experiencing. And what is it like to work there and how are they enjoying it? And what are their like values and philosophies? What do they want to do in business? And so for our sales team and our marketing team, it's like it's just a it's a really different kind of conversation. It's a really powerful conversation. It's one that's more about the future and like this world that we want to help create and live in and and see be successful for for us and our children and their children. And that's really exciting and powerful for us. So yeah, we we love that stakeholder philosophy. It's something that I get incredibly passionate about. It's something that uh, we try to push our, our our community in. We try to educate them about, um, and it's it's something that I think gives us that higher purpose beyond just making more tile each and every day. Yeah, if you want to avoid the commodity c word, you need to be able to make the connections with people. You need to have the culture that they believe in, and and give them reasons to understand why you can do better for them than someone else, and not just yeah. make the widget give the thing on time for a certain price. And that's a lot of people forget that that's where brand strategy comes from. It has to do with market strategy too, who you're working with um, from an end user standpoint. But brand gets wrapped up a lot in the presentation, which is very like vanity based and, and surface level. But that will draw someone in, but it might not make someone stick as a customer and a loyal brand follower. So having to take that deeper dive into why you do work the way you you do work, which is why someone might choose an Apple product over a Microsoft product, right? You could tie that to any industry you want. It's because they believe in the philosophy of the owners. They believe in the people that they're talking to over email and phone. And of course, they like the product experience at the end of the day too. When we had to raise money in 2013, I had a a business school professor that I I ended up in his house. I mean, this was like, huge house like really expensive house like i mean he could have like sold a door and it would have like helped pay for whatever it was we needed and uh and he just said to me i just i just don't get it eric like who i don't really care where my tile comes from i don't know who makes it my designer shows me some samples and i pick one like what's the big deal right and i heard that countless times like there's no brands in tile no one creates a brand and and uh you know I'm, i'm like super proud of it i think we've created a really amazing brand i mean when when i look at our instagram feed and or like we write emails and people respond to us. I mean, people are, or, you know, we score like mid eighties net promoter score. 
people really connect with us and they really feel like in this in this really challenging time of their life where they are doing a remodel, uh, they're they're over budget, they're over time, everything's a disaster. You know, here is here is a company where they like they connect with people, they understand where it's done, how it's done, our values, they understand like where their money is going, they understand our giving programs, they they were part of the whole design process. It's it's like a, a full experience. Uh, and it's and it's exciting for them, and they remember it and they want to share it. Uh, so I'm I'm really proud of that brand work that you just talked about, and and that emotional connection that I think is uh, so. So I always it's always about um. Uh, there's so much product, like there's there's too much product, but there's not enough experience in our industry. Mm. And so we were trying to like create that customer experience in an industry that is you know so driven just by product. And so if we can create that experience. You know, we think that's a, a huge differentiator, and and we're we're really proud of the brand and and how we've been able to do that. Yeah, that's why Luminous got into this industry. We think, I mean, there is tons of opportunity for so many companies in the building materials and products industries to not only have superior products but build superior experiences too. And yeah. they just ha- they have just been so rightly so uh, focused on making sure their R and D and quality control is top notch, and their executions for their customers are top notch that they've put the experience on the back burner, but a lot of them could afford the time and effort to just make it even better now too. And that's, that's sort of why we got involved. And that's why I have this podcast so I can share more stories to make them feel like, Oh, you know what? We should do this stuff. Like, I mean, you mentioned that you have, since you went direct and did more of a branded approach and developed all these experiences, both internally and externally with the customers, you have actually seen growth too. Like, what types of like percent growth have you seen since you've taken this approach compared to the the wholesale distribution kind of uh, sort of commoditized model that that Fireclay had before? You know, it's funny when I joined this industry, there was a lot of secrecy and like you know not sharing, and no one told each other like much. And my attitude is like the complete opposite. One of one of our friends once uh, came to visit us, and he grabbed me. He goes, "You know, what you are man. You're you guys are you're bright and open. That's what you are. You're bright and open." And so. <laughs> Uh, I share like I share everything internally. Everyone sees our financials like monthly, and and uh, and I share it externally. And and you know I'm always trying to connect with our competitors and our partners because you know I I think what we've built it's like I welcome anyone into our factory because it's it's it, there's all the micro stuff like you can't learn anything by seeing the type of kiln that we use or if I showed you how we use Salesforce like I'm happy to do it. It's just there's so much. There's so many micro efforts and processes and systems and people and tools and the way it all connects. That's the proprietariness. So, mm-hmm. so we've seen tremendous growth. I think I was sharing, you know, when I got here, we did a million and a half dollars my first year. We had 20 people. We had zero dollars. Uh, last year, we did 21 million in sales. We're, we're up this year compared to last year, which is, which is unique given the COVID environment. Right. And, and we've now got like a, a really nice profitable business where the goal is to be that, that specialty retail type company where we are. You know, in the kind of high fifties, low sixties gross margin, we're in the you know twenty to thirty percent EBITDA margin, uh, and and we're doing that all with a stakeholder philosophy. So one of the cool parts about Fireclay is we're we just made this huge announcement. We've been we've had employee ownership employee ownership since two thousand thirteen. Uh, coming in this year, about fifteen percent of our company was owned by employees. Um, we just made this announcement where um, through a founder buyout, Paul Paul has left the business and we're we're buying out his stock over a period of years. We're going to be able to uh, transition to you know almost thirty five to forty percent employee ownership. Nice. So our employees, all one hundred and fifty, have ownership stakes, and so as we grow and have more success and more profitability, they in turn will have a a, a real stake in that outcome. So it's not just me sitting at the top of this thing and 
or some investor or someone who's like you know offsite. It's it's all of us, and and it's not just like the ownership of the, the company. It's like it's our factory and our facility and the land and and the building and and the whole thing. So so the growth has been you know really good. We're still very small, right? I mean, this is a six billion dollar industry. We're still mm-hmm. like a nothing. Uh, and so much of this is still like it takes a long time to build a brand in this market, right? I mean, this is not a throw something up, get some Facebook ads, and like you're you're off to the races. I mean, these are highly considered purchases. You have to build trust and loyalty and experience. And a designer might love you, but it takes three clients before they actually get to specify you because that they wanted stone or they wanted porcelain or whatever it is. And so you know you have to like be in it for the long run. And like look to those leading indicators of samples and whatever. But the growth, you know, measuring, balancing supply and demand, getting the brand growth along with the production growth, you know, that we had a lot of bumps along the way. Uh, so I'd say we 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 probably could have been a little bit bigger if we had, you know, not had so many challenges on the production front. Just making everything to order, trying to get the balance of color and size and volume all correct all the time. Like that's been crazy difficult uh but but we've really made some incredible progress there so a lot of growth a lot of success with uh hopefully a lot more to come well let's let's wrap up with this type of question what's one thing that you think everyone should be doing for their brand in the building materials industry right now pricing yeah pricing everyone's like we need to know how much it costs how much does it cost how much does it cost and i ended up listening to this harvard business review podcast just like randomly i I listen up a lot of podcasts while i run and uh, they had this pricing guy. His name is Rafi Muhammad. And uh, he was talking about pricing. And I was just like, God, when was the last time I thought about our pricing? And here we are. You know, we are, we, we can change. I can go to our system site and change all of our prices. And no one would probably think twice about it, which is very different than a wholesale situation, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're like, but, you know, it all of a sudden, you know, I was like, we got to get, like, we got to be talking about this. And so we created, we call it the Craftsman of Coin. We created a pricing committee. And we really started going back and looking at pricing and not just like how much does our product cost? It's like, what are these services and benefits that we can offer? So I'll share a really quick story. Um, I've been obsessed with time. And so last year, uh, we actually made several hundred thousand dollars selling time. So like, you know, Uber and Lyft, they can do surge pricing. Why can't Fireclay? So, you know, adding a a little button at checkout uh, where a customer could rush an order. And so Mm. it allowed us to prioritize that order. We moved it up into the queue. Uh, we're, we're now like, I mean, it's crazy how successful we are at selling time and allowing customers to prioritize where they want to be in the queue and how fast they want their product. And, you know, that's just like one small example. One of the things we're about to unveil in the next week or two is a warranty program. So you talked about Apple, Apple has Apple care. Yeah. I can't fire clay, have fire clay care. And it's, we have a maker's guarantee. This is going to be a maker's guarantee premium. But this idea of like really making sure that people have like the full faith and we'll take care of people no matter what. But like there's installers and installers make mistakes. And if an installer makes a mistake, we're going to have your back. So we're going to sell a warranty program and, a, and a, a maker's guarantee premium program. So so there's a lot of these different ideas of how we price, how we think about pricing, the services that we offer, allowing people to opt into things that they want or that they might not want or thinking differently about, you know, right now it's like all the colors are sold the same, but like some colors are like really premium and others are white. And it's like, why, why do we do that? <laughs> so... So pricing is just like one of those things where as much as I think we had thought about it, we hadn't thought about it. And it's all of a sudden creating a lot of opportunity for profitability that we didn't know about. That's actually going to open up a lot more value for our customers and a lot more market share that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So so I would say pricing. And that keeps moving you away from the commoditization too. Yeah. 
Before we wrap up, why don't you tell people where they can find out more about you and also where they can find out more about Fireclay Tile too? Yeah. So, I mean, Fireclay's Instagram is awesome. Uh, so Fireclay Tile, we do this thing every Friday. Might might have just gone live because today's Friday. Uh, we do factory Fridays where it's like a huge sneak peek into our factory every Friday, uh, real time of what we're doing. And that's super cool. But we have incredible inspiration. It's beautiful. It's it's really well done. Our team does an amazing job with it. Myself, uh, I'd say LinkedIn. I'm, I'm a, I, I love LinkedIn and I like to write and I like to share. And, uh, and so I like to connect. Uh, so that would be the best place to find me. Very cool. Well, thanks for being on. This was a super awesome episode. You got a lot of good stories. I hope people take something from and uh, I'm sure I'll see you around online because I'm also very active on LinkedIn too. Yes, you are. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Tim. If you're interested in hearing more stories and strategic insights from industry experts, please subscribe to the Building Brands podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. If you've enjoyed this episode, please post a review and share with others who may be interested as well. Thanks for listening.